What do you think is the most unladylike thing about the tuba? Uh, well, you have to spread your legs to play it. <laughs> you literally <laughs> have to. <laughs> unladylike. Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Kristen, did you play an instrument growing up? <laughs> I mean, I definitely attempted. Uh, when I w- was homeschooled during middle school, I-, I tried to teach myself how to play guitar. And uh, I'm left-handed and just accidentally ended up teaching myself how to play upside down. So that was kind of a disaster. <laughs> what about you? No, no, I was not a musical child. I did dream about playing the clarinet. But when I was a tiny person and my mom took me to see this band director guy, he told me that my arms were too short and my fingers were too small, which basically broke my heart. And to be honest, I'm really salty about it still. Well, Caroline, surely your arms and fingers have grown since then. <laughs> I know. Who's to say? <laughs> but, you know, I, I do think it's pretty obvious. You and I are not exactly musical prodigies. But when we got an email from an unladylike listener named Lindsay, who plays the sousaphone, a.k.a. tuba, in her university's marching band, our interest was piqued. She wrote, You realize in band class as a kid that instruments are gendered. Girls would play flute and clarinet, and the boys would play trumpet and tuba. Since I was little, I wanted to play the tuba, but would get the you're too small, and that's typically a male instrument conversations. If I had a nickel for every time some old man told me I was awfully small to play such a big instrument, then I could pay off my student loans. God, I wish sexism literally paid. But Lindsay's right. I mean, like, we really project gender onto our musical instruments and who we think should play what. Studies have actually found that tubas are considered the most masculine of the instruments. Meanwhile, the most feminine is the flute, which I also tried and failed to teach myself during homeschool, Caroline. Man, I really have questions about your homeschool music career. (laughs) But today, though, we're asking, why are certain instruments still deemed unladylike to play? And what happens when women dare to toot their own horns anyway? I feel like the, the trombone is kind of like a... You can kind of blow your troubles into it, and just this lovely music comes out. So it's like a transformer. We talked to trombonist Abby Conant by Skype from her home in Germany, and we're going to hear all about this epic lawsuit she brought against the Munich Philharmonic to prove she belonged at the front of the brass section. And our other guest, who you heard at the top of the show, is Chanel Critchlow. She's a tuba player who also knows her way around the boys' brass club. Chanel's going to tell us about how she ended up bucking the classical world for a style that looked and sounded more like her own. Abby Conant grew up in the 1960s, a time when there were few women in professional music. For instance, some world-class orchestras like the Vienna and Berlin Philharmonics explicitly did not allow women into their pits. So when it came time for Abby to pick an instrument in band class, she didn't put a lot of stake into the choice. Yeah, one of the guys in her class, this quarterback actually, also played the trombone and said, oh, you should you should definitely play the trombone, Abby. Yeah, like it was kind of a wink-wink, wouldn't that be funny kind of thing. But huh, Abby got the last laugh because she accepted the challenge. I opened the case, 
stinky case, you know, kind of smelled of slide oil and mold. And real scratchy up old ambassador, and and I put it together and um, put the mouthpiece on there and blew a note, hoping that I I wouldn't get some dread disease. And it was <laughs> actually a great note. I mean, I could just make a good sound on the thing. So good that Abby joined the band, and the band teacher was impressed. And he put me on first, so I kind of replaced that quarterback. trombone player who wasn't very happy about it. And that is how Abby's love affair with the trombone began. Could you describe what the trombone sounds like? So it's 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 warm and it's round and it's it can be brassy and it can be just gorgeous and big and beautiful and golden and powerful. And it can be incredibly soft, whisper-like soft and gentle and sexy and you name it. It has so many personalities. You know, it has a jazz, blues personality. It has a classical personality. Do you have a favorite personality of all of the trombone's many personalities? Yes, I think I like the classical personality the best, I must say. The clear bel canto sound and um, just the, the beauty of it. It can really sound quite heavenly. But also, as I say, you know, it has, it has a, it can kick you in the butt too. <laughs> Kristen, it seriously sounds like she is in love with the trombone. And I'm in love with her love of the trombone, Caroline. And Abby has been through a lot with that instrument. The legal battle, which we're going to get into, but also just personal stuff. As a teen, it was her way to escape from family strife. The trombone was just this little island of solace. Abby took her trombone playing seriously, and she got good. She competed and won. She practiced and got scholarships to competitive arts camps. But even still, she encountered plenty of sexist discouragement. In my senior year, I remember asking my trombone teacher, well, well, where should I apply? And he said, you know, well, even the guys are going to have trouble getting jobs. There just aren't that many orchestra jobs, you know. And so as a girl, you won't have a chance. So, so you should go into music ed, which was really Really, for me, it was, it was such a blow. I was just devastated. Abby says she doesn't think her teacher was trying to sound like such a dick. He was just trying to level with her. But still, it didn't stop Abby, though. She studied musical performance, not education, at Temple University, and then went to Juilliard for her master's. No big deal, just Juilliard. <laughs> right. Then she headed off to Italy and played for the Royal Opera of Turin. After that, Abby applied to 11 orchestras. She only heard back from one, the Munich Philharmonic. What did they say in their invitation? Well, it was addressed to a Herr Abby Conant, Mr. Abby Conant. Uh, which kind of also like, what? That was confusing because I had, you know, you had to send a picture and everything and I had clearly was female and a long hair and <laughs> and the whole nine yards. But um, I think what happened was I think they invited everyone who applied because they really wanted to hire somebody in that audition. 
the way these auditions work is in rounds. So you make it through the first and you immediately play the second and so on. Also around this time in the 70s and 80s, orchestras began using what are called blind auditions. So when Abby gets there, she plays the first round behind a screen like all the other applicants. So the judges can't actually see her while she performs. I was number 16 out of 33 candidates. And um, they didn't take anybody after me because apparently everyone thought that number 16 was the one. For the second round, Abby had to walk out on stage, this time there was no screen, and play a piece for the whole orchestra. When I came out, there was an audible, like, oh, <laughs> you know, kind of like, oh my God. No one was expecting that their favorite player could possibly be a woman. But still, Abby blows them away once again. They take a vote on whether to offer her the spot, and she gets in. The whole orchestra sort of came towards me, you know, backstage and, you know, the conductor and everybody was kind of congratulating me. And then a, a horn player sort of took me aside and said, you know, uh, this could be tough. <laughs> he said, "It's." he said, I think it's fantastic that they took a woman, but um, there's a, a lot of people that, you know, are really against it, just so you know. The initial irony here, Caroline, is that those blind auditions were intended to basically make orchestras less, you know, all male, kind of forcing judges to evaluate applicants based on skill instead of appearance. And in Abby's case, it worked. Except once she was actually in the orchestra, some dudes weren't so excited that there was a woman on stage with them. One other guy in the brass section, she says, would sit there and literally gnash his teeth and mutter every time she played. But the dick with a stick who really mattered was this guest conductor with a very Romanian name that uh, Abby pronounces much better than I can. Sergi Celi Bidachi. Yeah, that guy. So he was subbing in as the guest conductor for the Munich Philharmonic when Abby auditioned. And he was also, as Abby put it, a known sexist. Right. And since he was just filling in at first, he didn't have any veto power to stop Abby from being chosen as first chair trombonist. But all bets were off once the Philharmonic offered him a contract as principal conductor. Pretty much as soon as he signed on, sexist Sergiu made it his mission to get this girl out of his orchestra. And he couldn't outright fire Abby because that would just invite a bunch of legal trouble. Instead, he just tried to make her miserable. He wound up demoting her from first to second chair, even though Abby was contracted to play first chair. Understandably, Abby is super confused. She tries playing better. She tries not caring. But after about a year of runaround, she's like, look, dude, we got to talk. And he finally said, OK, get in, the, hop in the taxi. I have to go to this other concert. So I rode in the back of a taxi. He was in the front seat. And he was kind of turning around and talking. And I, and he said, oh, you know the problem, Abby. We need a man for the first trombone. <laughs> and it was like, oh, that's what it is. Abby was totally deflated. Now she had to decide whether she would accept this completely unfair plot or if she'd fight it. You know, a couple of people said, you know, why don't you just have a nice life? You know, buy a house, start a family, you know, that whole thing. And, <laughs> and, and, and I knew that wasn't my path, but, you know, I thought, well, God, fighting sounds awful, too. 
And so I contacted the musicians union and they said, well, yeah, you could fight this and you'll, you'll, you'll probably win. It'll take from two, to three to five years. And to me, that sounded like eternity. So I went to visited a friend and she said, well, why don't you just fight as an experiment? So I thought, well, hmm. So I tried for a while to just accept and see what that felt like. And I got really, really depressed. And then I decided, okay, then I'm going to fight it. And then I felt like a human being. That was, for me, the real, the real victory, was deciding to fight. So Abby sued the orchestra for unfairly demoting her based on gender. Encouraged by her lawyer, she set out to do anything she could to prove her worth and put a stop to the sexist abuse. And to be honest, Abby was going to need all the encouragement she could find because as she was suing the orchestra, she was also still working there. And that whole three to five years the Musicians Union had warned her it would take, yeah, they were way off. After the break, Abby fights for her right to toot her own trombone. We're back with trombonist Abby Conant. It's the early 1980s, and Abby has taken the Munich Philharmonic to court for being demoted from first to second chair trombonist, simply for being a woman. The Philharmonic, of course, was like, no, 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 it's not because she's a woman. Like, Caroline, get a load of their explanation to the court for demoting Abby. Quote, The plaintiff does not possess the necessary physical strength to be a leader of the trombone section. She is not in the position to clearly lead the trombone group. Apart from that, she lacks the required empathy to translate the artistic wishes of the general music director. And Abby was like, oh, hell no. One of the ridiculous criticisms that the the orchestra supposedly made was that I I was in, in German, it's ständige Atomnot. (laughs) which means um, that I was having difficulty breathing, you know. (laughs) I mean, it's like insane. Abby thought she could put that argument to rest if she got a medical professional to evaluate her lungs and breathing. So she went into a specialist, got prodded and poked and tested. Like, they even took blood from her ears. And so the chief uh, doctor came and, and afterwards and he said, well, why are you here? It looks to me like you're some sort of uh, elite athlete. (laughs) I said, well, actually, I'm a trombone player. (laughs) Abby and her lawyer gave that info to the judge presiding over their case, but that still wasn't enough. The judge told her, "Okay, listen, how about we assign like a brass expert to evaluate you, you know, just to make sure that you're truly deserving of the first chair in the orchestra. So like a court appointed tromboner. (laughs) See what I mean there? Yes, basically. But the thing is, Kristen, it took them years to find someone who would do it and do it fairly. Eventually, they set up like this whole little like pseudo audition and the expert gave her a few pieces to play. And so I had to play every excerpt three times in different tempi and different, you know, expression things, whatever, just to see if I was flexible and I could, you know, take instruction and from a conductor and all that stuff. And so I knew, I realized, you know, that 
I was playing for my life. Okay, Kristen, like what is going on here? Why is this obviously accomplished trombonist being put through the ringer like this? Well, to answer that, Caroline, we've got to unpack some claptrap. Unpack the Claptrap is the part of the show where we pick up our feminist conductor batons and tune out patriarchy's sad trombones. (laughs) And truly, y'all, when it comes to brass instruments in particular, there are so many strange notes to hit. Right. So remember listener Lindsay's letter, the part about band class and gendering instruments? Well, those stereotypes develop around third grade. And by fifth, like, They're basically ingrained. Well, so where did the whole notion of no girls allowed in the horn section even come from? Well, it came from the way that dudes blew their instruments outside the orchestra. So, like, French horns were used in hunting, and trumpets have traditionally been used in battle and military bands, and school marching bands evolved from those military bands, hence their masculine stereotyping. What do you think it is about brass instruments in particular that seem to arouse so much sexism and even just outright misogyny? Hmm. Well, I think because they're whenever you're sort of playing a brass instrument, you can make a lot of noise. It literally, it's like you have a really loud voice, and and women are <laughs> in throughout history of you know supposed to be quiet. And so I think that's especially irritating. Although it's interesting with the trombone because there were actually nuns in the 17th, 16th century also who played trombone. So wait, there there were trombone (laughs) playing nuns. But see, this was was secret knowledge until a musicologist uh, dug this stuff up. No one knew. When I found out, I thought, I have ancestors. <laughs> God, I have a lineage, you know. It, and it's still, I still think about it and I'm, I'm amazed. Despite that amazing lineage, those physical tests Abby had to undergo in her lawsuit are evidence of just how potent those instrument gender stereotypes became. Like the fact that men might have played horns more often than women morphed into this belief that men were innately better at it because of their superior man lungs and man lips. No kidding. And, you know, a lot of the criticism women faced when even attempting to play music came down to their appearance. It was considered unbecoming to play any instruments that required you to move too much. For instance, the rare woman who played the cello was actually expected to sit side saddle. Not to mention a lady shouldn't do anything that would disfigure her face. Yeah, listen to this. In 1904, conductor and composer Gustav Kirchhoff wrote, Women cannot possibly play brass instruments and look pretty, and why should they spoil their good looks? Why, indeed. And you know what's wild is that half a century later, like, this idea had not gone away. In a 1962 edition of my favorite magazine, American String Teacher, a male musician wondered whether female lips, quote, accustomed to compressing and making sounds through wind instruments aren't a little tougher, less pliant than those of non-wind players. In other words, if you want to be considered feminine and kissable, you better not blow those horns. (laughs) Gross. And that's exactly the kind of sexism that rings familiar to our persistent trombonist, Abby. I went into this orchestral situation thinking, well, they chose me because I played the best. 
And, and I know I did. So it's like, okay, so I have a right to be here. And kind of the feeling like, well, if I'm nice and I'm respectful and I'm, and I'm social and I'm communicative, then I won't have any problems. But wow, I had never, ever had any experience with people who just really hated you because you were a woman, you know, and you were playing an instrument that you should not be playing. Y'all, Abby's lawsuit lasted for 11 years. But in the end, she won. Abby was reinstated to first chair. And she was mostly victorious in a follow-up suit over pay discrimination. She won that too, but the statute of limitations meant she could earn only some of the back pay that she was owed. Abby didn't stick around the Munich Philharmonic for long after that. In 1993, she accepted a full-tenured professorship at the university where she still teaches in Germany. Abby is proud that her fight helped pave the way for other women in professional orchestras to speak up about unfair treatment and unequal pay. And her advice for other women facing sexism in the brass section? Just do it anyway. (laughs) So, Abby, was the fight worth it? Oh, yes, definitely. Because, you know, it, it, it was a fight for, for the dignity of women. So it was totally worth it. And I don't know if I'd do it again, but um, no, it, 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 had its, uh, it had its kind of the rewards of the soul, if you will, and the spirit. Well, here at this show, we always say, if you got a problem, get unladylike. And it sounds like you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. You know, there's a, there's a funny, I have to say, there's a, there's a verb in German. Let's see. It's, it's like herausposaunen, and, which means to trombone it out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I guess that's what I did. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love Abby's passion and persistence. And you know, Kristen, we weren't the only ones who admired her story. The issues of snap judgment that unfolded after Abby stepped out from behind her audition screen actually helped inspire Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. No big deal. But, you know, Caroline, ever since Abby tromboned it out and won her legal battle in the early 90s, the brass section has remained pretty resolutely a boys' club. So a survey of the current season of the top 22 orchestras in the world identified 99 trombonists, 26 tubists, and 103 trumpeters. Guess how many of them are women? I mean, okay, so it's probably still not great, but I would guess like 15 or 20. The answer is one. Okay. One. One lone female trumpeter. (laughs) Sad. Sad and amazing. But Kristen, you know, as Abby was finally settling her court case in Germany, our second guest was just about to make her own musical discovery across the pond in Manhattan. I feel like the tuba knew who I was going to be before I was going to be that person. This is tuba player Chanel Critchlow. Maybe my 11-year-old self kind of knew that for some reason, this spoke the best to me um, and to who I was going to be, the shape of it, the sound, everything. 
Chanel is good friends with our producer, Nora. So shout out to Nora for bringing her our way. And also shout out to Chanel, whose wife had their first baby like five days before you interviewed her, Kristen. (laughs) I know. I almost felt bad, like taking time away from her with her newborn. You know, but Chanel's story is really one about embracing her identity to, to carve out the space and find the role models she needed in the music world, both as a tuba player and as a Black queer woman. Yeah, because while we've been focusing on the gender dynamics of orchestras, we've also got to note that the classical world is very white. As of 2014, African Americans comprise less than 2% of the nation's orchestra players. For Chanel, her journey into music started with her mom. She liked to sing and used to sing songs to Chanel in their home in New York City all the time. But when Chanel was in sixth grade, her mom's job with the United Nations required that she travel for a few years. So she sent Chanel to live with her grandparents in Trinidad, but not without a gift to remember her by. She sent me this keyboard, um, and I didn't know how to play keyboard or anything, but she sent it to me, and it was, you know, this, like, Yamaha keyboard, and it had these preset songs to it. Yes. <laughs> and then I would, like, play along, like, fake playing along, and... Uh, It was awesome, and I think that's really where my musical career kind of sparked because I was missing my mom a lot, and so I would be by myself in a room just kind of like crying and singing a hymn, and then I got that keyboard, and it kind of just opened up my mind from, from there. Chanel found that music was a way for her to get in touch with her emotions and express them. So when she moved back from Trinidad to New York for middle school, Chanel joined the school band where she got to choose a new instrument. I knew that I didn't want to play the flute because I felt like it was a very girly instrument. Mm -hmm. At least that's my 11-year-old brain. And I didn't want to be that. Whatever, Whatever was associated with it, I didn't want to be it. I definitely had these idea of gender and gender identity and knowing that I wanted an instrument that fit who I felt that I was. Chanel's band director took all the instruments out one by one and played them for the class. When he got to the tuba, Chanel knew that was the one. I was just drawn to the size of it. I was drawn to the low, kind of sweet sound to it, the buttery sound. It wasn't harsh, but yet it could be harsh when it needed to be. Um, and it wasn't very high pitched. It was, it had like a sweet middle ground and it could also go really low. Um, and for some reason, I just love that whole timbre. Chanel got assigned one of the instruments at school and couldn't wait to get her hands on it. When he like, assigned all these numbers and I got to go get my instrument, even though it wasn't mine. I mean, it was shared with other classes, but it was mine. Like that was my horn for this period. And it felt really special. Um, And I really cherished like when he was showing us how to clean it. I was like, okay, I'm going to take care of this. It felt really special. It felt like I got to be part of something a little bit bigger, you know, than just like your math class or something. And it came with its own special cubby. I mean, hello. (laughs) (laughs) Which I imagine was probably one of the bigger cubbies to fit a tuba. It was a huge cubby. (laughs) It was like, you know, up to your waist or something. It was pretty awesome. 
Chanel says that when she first started playing tuba, she was only a foot or so taller than the instrument, which also weighed about 40 pounds. The only thing is my mom, when I got home with the tuba, when you get to take it home for the first time, she's like, whoa, I can't believe you chose this huge instrument. Chanel couldn't lift her tuba when it was in the heavy hard-sided case. So she put it in an army duffel bag and she and her mom carried it around. To school, to practice, to auditions. They carried it a lot because Chanel was also getting really good. I could really feel the progression. And I think when people talk about music or they talk about fitness, that's where you get hooked is when you see your progress. And I could really go home and practice and I could see, oh, wow, this thing is getting better. This specific thing, because it's so, everything is such at a micro level when you're doing music, when you're young. It's like, okay, I'm just going to get this note or I'm going to work on this fingering pattern. I'm going to work on this phrase or this scale. And I could see myself getting better at that stuff. And I couldn't see myself getting better at certain things like math or, you know, other subjects like that. And when I felt that way about about music, I was like, okay, I could be in school and learn this instrument, but I could also do something with it that's mine. In seventh grade, Chanel got into a special program for music. Which is was called the Music Advancement Program, which was for all people of color. And that was really special because I got to have a teacher for the first time, a private teacher for the first time. She got personal instruction and attention. And she says it was awesome to play with other kids who looked like her. But Chanel was still short on tuba playing role models who looked like her. That is, until her mom bought her a CD of Velvet Brown. Velvet Brown is a Penn State professor and a tuba soloist, who also happens to be another Black woman. You know, before her, I never have seen a Black woman on a CD cover playing a horn. And that's any kind of horn, not just tuba. What did it feel like to see that that album cover? Um, my mom brought it home for me. It just made me feel like, man, like, okay, I can't wait to listen to this. It was really meaningful because she saw it and she said, wow, this is what my daughter is doing. I'm going to bring this home, something that looks like her. And... It was life-changing. That album was life-changing, you know? It was a moment of like, okay, I think I could do this too. Chanel's teen life quickly became all about music. The tuba was basically an extension of herself. And, you know, like Abby's trombone, it was also an island of solace. It has a bit of vulnerability to it, but it also, I feel like it has a lot of strength. And I think that it carried me through a lot too. I remember when I was a kid and I had to go live with my dad because my mom kicked me out of the house. Um, I remember I took, I, I don't even remember the clothes that I packed, but I remember I took like Tchaikovsky scores with me. <laughs> <laughs> I took my tuba and I was like, okay, I could manage this. So I felt like at those times, like it was a lot for me. It was much more for me than than it was for maybe someone who just played the horn, you know? By the end of high school, Chanel had one big dream. I remember I went to New York Philharmonic. I got one of those posters. And at the time, they had a poster with all the musicians in the orchestra standing up in front of their seats. And on my wall, I put it up on my wall. It was a poster, and I circled the tour player's head. 
I was like, I was like, that's my goal. It was a very clear goal. It was, that's where I wanted to be, 100%. Chanel pursues her dream and makes her own reality when we come back. We're back breaking the musical gender rules with tuba player Chanel Critchlow, a.k.a. Tuba Fresh. After high school, Chanel was accepted to the Manhattan School of Music Conservatory, a very prestigious musical performance program. But getting in was only half the battle because she quickly discovered that the college brass section was a lot more competitive than her high school bands. Yeah, Chanel and her classmates were all trying to become performance musicians, you know, land spots and orchestras. But there are only 50 orchestras in the U.S. that pay a living wage. And all of those only have one spot for tuba. On top of that, it was a total white boys club. Not only was Chanel one of just a few black students in the whole conservatory, she was also the only woman in the brass section. You know, there were a lot of jokes in the horn section when I was in college about women, about whatever, about these kind of things, that's inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And I think when you are that one person in the horn section not smiling at that joke or you're not going to the bar afterwards, um, there's like this sort of resistance that kind of happens there. And I think that men just want to feel more comfortable around each other because there's certain things that they could say around each other and do around each other that's just going to be signed off as kind of like playful and no harm. At the same time Chanel was not laughing at those jokes, she was also starting to get a peek into the professional music world, performing and landing gigs for the summer. And that toxic masculinity vibe she felt from the brass bros, she realized it reached far beyond her section. The music industry is one of the last places for masculinity to be accountable. To be a woman in this industry is really difficult. So if you're a woman that you identify at all with on a feminine spectrum, it's going to help you to kind of play that up. Play it up as in get sexy. Chanel says that even she, as a pretty non-feminine presenting person, still gets asked to wear dresses and heels and performances. She just tells people that that's not really her. I've been very, 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 very upfront about who I am and my character and my presentation because I had been down that road before you know my mom pressuring me to wear skirts and dresses and things like that and I knew that I wasn't going to be that type of musician. Back at school Chanel was starting to get a little disillusioned with the classical music world. Not only was she facing a career of sitting in a section next to a bunch of dudes who made dumb jokes the music itself was an old boys club canon. So, Caroline, the organization Women in Music looked at more than 1,400 classical performances around the world in 2018 and found that just 5% contained any music composed by women. For Chanel, it was also dawning on her that her teachers didn't know anything about Black musicians either. Like, she had seen this documentary about Joseph Boulogne, an 18th century composer who's often called the Black Mozart. And this guy was prolific. But when Chanel brought him up to her instructor, he'd never even heard of the guy. For some reason, that's when I realized that this isn't the sort of education that I need to get as 
a person of color. I've been studying all of these old white men for so long. And I, yeah, I love them. Like, I love the work that they did. I respect them entirely. That's the music that I wanted to play. But I realized something hit me at that point that the, these teachers and these people in power that are teaching me this information don't have what I need. And I need another side of things. So, Caroline, get ready for a beautiful full circle moment because Chanel turned to a woman who, by that point, had become her mentor, Velvet Brown. Wait, the woman from the CD? Yes, that Velvet. Way back when Chanel was a teen, her mom had also reached out to Velvet, asked if she'd give Chanel a lesson, and the two kept in touch. So when it came time for Chanel to pursue her master's, it was kind of a no-brainer that she'd go to Penn State and study under Velvet Brown officially. And even though Velvet plays mostly classical orchestral music, a.k.a. composed by a lot of white guys, working with Velvet really made Chanel feel seen. When I studied with her, I feel that immediately that there were certain things that we experienced in a similar way. Just based on race, based on gender, we had conversations about those things. I mean, I think it's crazy to see someone who was given all these obstacles for whatever reason and still make it out the other side and still have something really beautiful and powerful to say. And I think that is strength. And I think that that's what we saw in each other. She knew things I would experience before I did. Things like... Just racism, you know, I guess just to be blunt about it, uh, I did auditions uh, for summer camps and things like that. And I they forgot to take the note out of my out of my folder. So I actually got to see their audition notes. And one of the and one of the people auditioning me, they actually put my race down on the paper. (laughs) They put black. Nice tone. Just little things like that. And then you, as a teenager, you get to learn that, wow, so this is bigger than what I think it is. This is not just me finding my voice and finding a way to express myself. It's much bigger because when I go and I talk to kids or talk to students that are women and that are black too or people of color, I could just see it in their eyes. Like they've never seen anybody that looked like them doing this until now. And for me, Velvet was that person. Even under Velvet's tutelage, Chanel still wasn't sure that classical music was her thing. She was itching for music she could put her own flair on that wasn't so much about just playing her part in another person's song. One day, Chanel was talking to another tubist, this Norwegian guy who's a soloist and doesn't play in an orchestra. And he told her that he loved playing on his own because the music felt like his. So... When he said that, something lit up inside of me, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing. And I talked to Velvet about it, and I was like, you know, I'm thinking about starting my own brass band. You know, I wanted to have some rappers. I wanted to be a little bit jazzy, some hip-hop, original music. And she was like, yeah, go for it. Chanel hit the books again, but this time she studied black music. Hip-hop, jazz, even Trinidadian music. And she started her own band, the Pitch Black Brass Band. Pitch Black 
brass band, you see us. Disrespect the haters, but they don't speak up. Work hard till the week up, then I'm chilling like a turtle in the sun with my feet up. Pitch Black had a whopping 10 members, and Chanel made sure that the group was diverse, with other women on horns and other folks of color in the band. The best part, though, was that they were playing the kind of music that Chanel felt like herself playing. So to have this sound that is so powerful and so raw, it's, uh, it's not tidy, you know? Mm. It's not perfect. It's not rounded edges. It's not, like, tall, you know? It's like, <laughs> ah! It's like in your face. Uh, and I feel like all of a sudden we were connecting so much more to who we were. And we were growing with that together. It was energizing. It was really different than orchestral playing. It was no holding back. It was no one in front of you telling you what you need to do, be quieter, be louder, kind of dictating your movements and your style. It's all of you coming up with your style yourself. Everyone's exploring. And I thought it was it was great. Pitch Black played together for 10 years under Chanel's direction. They traveled around the country, playing at prestigious spots like the Kennedy Center and Brooklyn Bowl. In 2013, they recorded a debut album fittingly called You See Us. Recently, Chanel's kind of drifted away from Pitch Black to pursue some solo projects like Tuba Fresh. She's also been studying a new instrument, the flugelbone, which I had not heard of before, but it's a cross between a flugelhorn and a trombone. That does not sound made up at all. She never pursued, though, that spot in the New York Philharmonic. Because now, the musical possibilities Chanel envisions just extend far beyond patriarchal orchestra pits. So what is your advice for girls who might want to try big brass or the lower brass instruments? I think keep looking ahead and definitely feel like you're being a creator. There's not always going to be a path that's set out for you that you can see, but I think imagination is the best thing you have. You have to make that inspire you to really feel like, you know what, I'm going to carve out something here that others could follow too. I'm going to carve something out that's never been done before. So, Caroline, we've been talking about, uh, you know, tooting our own horns and such. And I just happened to have a horn laying around Like my you house. do. So, let's go for this. Okay. I'm going to try. I don't even know how to hold this right. It won't even make a sound! <laughs> Wait, oh, oh, oh. You're almost. so red right now. Care to take a spit? Yeah. Okay. Caroline, you're a natural. <laughs> um, call up that asshole band teacher who told you you couldn't play the clarinet. 
Okay, Caroline, I don't think any professional orchestras are going to be calling us, <laughs> but we can let some professional musicians, a.k.a. the Pitch Black Brass Band, help us out with our credit music today. Yes, please. I don't think I can trumpet us out of this. <laughs> and, you know, huge thanks to listener Lindsay for writing in about the tuba in the first place. We love hearing from y'all. So tell us, are you out there tooting your own horn or playing another unladylike instrument? Email us at hello at unladylike.co, hit us up on social at unladylike media, or join the conversation in our Facebook group. And be sure to stop by our website, unladylike.co, to check out our sources, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and pick up a copy of our book, Unladylike, A Field Guide to Smashing the Patriarchy and Claiming Your Space. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. And Ash Sanders transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Ami Mae Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Rattle at Mast. Special thanks to Daniel Waldorf for recording Chanel and Abby and Chanel for letting us play their music today. We are your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week... We want to know, what is your most unladylike trait? I curse like a sailor. I cuss like a sailor. I curse like a sailor. We hear this answer so often. But why do we still think it's so unladylike to curse? Y'all are not going to want to miss this episode. So make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. I can play the mouth horn. This is a, it, it, it's improvised. Mouth jazz. <laughs> mouth jazz. That's my new podcast. Welcome to Mouth Jazz. <laughs> Stitcher. 